right. Good news, bad news for all of us every week, probably. Well, for me, the bad news this week, so exciting that we're starting a little, talked about last week, our, our Preston Crest uh, NCAA Church Office Bracket Tournament posted a little video you can look at on the Preston Crest uh, YouTube site that's, uh, I think, kind of funny. Uh, anyways, uh, but yeah, so exciting, always when you start the tournament, well, who picked Virginia as their national champion? That would be me. That would be you. Okay. Yeah, we lost to University of Maryland, Baltimore County. So uh, it's over. Done. Okay. And Brad, I don't know if Brad, Brad's not here tonight, but Brad, who's currently in first place, picked uh, North Carolina as his champion. It looks like the Aggies are beating North Carolina. So good, good job on the Aggies, but Brad will probably be dropping out. So that's not good news. Good news is kind of cool. I got Ashley back there. Wave your hand there, Ashley. Douglas is back there with little Logan in the foyer, but so it's just kind of funny how God works, you know, but so we moved to Brazil, we start the church there, and one of our youth group members who came just decided to come on his own, parents weren't part of the church or anything, uh, this teenage dude named Douglas who was a rocker, hair down here, played electric guitar, so Douglas showed up, eventually Ashley comes from Kansas, K-State Wildcat, get him, you guys play tonight by the way, okay, yeah, you don't even know, all right. Uh, they played tonight. But anyway, Ashley comes down to work at a, an orphanage there in Rio, and then Ashley and Douglas meet, and then Ag Ashley and Douglas get married, and then Douglas ends up coming back here, getting a job. You guys are out in Sacramento, California, and now you're moving to Dallas. Woo! Yeah. So got a job, and that's going to be cool. So it's just kind of funny how God moves his pieces around and does neat things. Uh, tonight, so we're going to be in Joshua chapter 10, and I'll start with this question as we continue through the book of Joshua, just a thought I had on this passage. So science and religion, or science and faith, are they at odds with each other? Some people assume that they are. Do they need to be at odds with each other? Well, tonight in this chapter, um, we're going to encounter definitely one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. I mean, miraculous in one of the very few miracles that actually involves uh, celestial bodies, uh, obeying the voice of God as the sun will stand still tonight. Um, and that's a miracle, at least in relation to our horizon, the sun would, would stand still. And that's a miracle, and, and it's one that we know today, that, that's just scientifically impossible for the earth to be here, the sun to be here, and not move in relation to each other for a day. Um, so um, what if the two, though, what if science and faith are not at odds? It's just that science tells a story, but not always the whole story. The physical world does not hold all of the answers. And hey, I've got Christian friends who are believers, and uh, obviously believers, but, but they'll say, hey, wait a second, um, I believe in God, but I also believe everything should be explainable by science, and I respect them, and, and definitely we need Christians in science, physics, astrophysics, biology. We need Christians, young people to get into that and, and to bring, uh, you know, that wisdom of God into those fields of study. It's an incredibly powerful tool that I believe is God-given. Uh, but basically, and, and you look in the Old Testament, like Solomon, we don't often think, we think of Sol King Solomon. Solomon was a scientist, 
I'm going to challenge you to read his story in 1 Kings 4, 29 to 34, as it kind of summarizes his life. He was a man of science and a man of faith as well. But God granted him this amazing understanding of not only spiritual things, but, but the physical world as well. And people traveled from all over the world to hear him expound on animals and plant life and stuff like that. But again, as people of faith, uh, we make room for God to do things that simply cannot be explained by anything other than God. Uh, we do believe there is a force at work in the world that can interrupt the normal physical operations of the universe, can do miraculous things. Now, we believe Jesus died, clinically dead, three days later resurrected from death to life. We believe that the waters of the Red Sea opened up, parted for the people of Israel to cross, and then closing in on the soldiers of Egypt. We believe that the Jordan River uh, years later would, would stop upstream and allow the people to, to pass on dry land. We believe that the walls of Jericho collapsed by the command of God, no military maneuver or, or mines set underneath. No, it was God. It was God that did that. Um, so if you walk by sight and not by faith, um, if your world must be 100% explainable by the physical information that you have access to, that you can see with your eyes, that you can test experimentally, then the Bible is definitely going to challenge you, definitely going to stretch you. And some think there are, look, there are no one-offs in history. There's nothing truly new that ever happens after the truly new thing of the Big Bang or, or the creation of the universe. Nothing truly new, original has ever happened. Uh, and if it, if it hasn't happened already, it can't happen, and the Bible is certainly going to challenge that. So the Bible, no need to tell you, no surprise here, it's controversial, all right? Um, it stretches people because the Bible invites regular folks like us to believe in something we cannot see, to believe in things that we can't explain from a human point of view, um, that there is one who has dominion over the physical universe, right? Now, as people who trust in God, we believe some impossible things. I would say that Easter coming up in a couple of weeks, that that is an impossible thing that we believe in. Um, and tonight, we're actually going to get to an impossible thing. So very close to the core of our faith tonight as we trust in the God who does amazing things. And, and here's where we're headed tonight. If we have a relationship with God, if we know God, and if we believe in Him, then we live differently. Um, we live, I believe, as we were always meant to live. Now to the text. This is in Joshua chapter 10, starting in verse 1. I've got some doozy names in here tonight, so bear with me. But now Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon, talked about this last week, had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He, uh, Adonai Zedek, and his people were very much alarmed at this. 
because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all of its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. I'm confident <laughs> these names are not showing up uh, like in birth registers around Dallas County these days, or probably none of these Zedeks or Hohams in the nursery these days. Um, but these were people in, at this time that were leaders of their people groups, the Amorite peoples there in the land of Israel. And interestingly here, we have the very first mention in the Bible of this rather important city, the city of Jerusalem. Here it appears in Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. And obviously this is going to be very important in centuries to follow when eventually the Israelites take this city, when David takes this city uh, and becomes the capital of Israel and a centerpiece of many of the events in both the Old and New Testaments. But at this point, this king of Jerusalem... Uh, who is not a believer in God and who identifies himself as an enemy of Israel, this guy is rallying the troops of these neighboring peoples against Gibeon, right? Why? Well, he's heard of this alliance that's been formed, peace treaty. Israel and Gibeon are now partners, are now allies. And Israel is getting a lot of attention in that part of the world right now because of what they did to Jericho and what they did to Ai and their territorial claims that include all uh, of those lands in Israel. So Gibeon has taken a knee. Gibeon has submitted to Israel, is now a vassal state, if you will, of Israel. They're water carriers for Israel. Uh, and that's a big deal because Gibeon, we're told here, is an important city. And Gibeon is uh, pretty powerful militarily. The soldiers are known uh, to be good soldiers. So Adonai Zedek wants to make an example out of Gibeon. Doesn't want other people to align with Israel. So he wants to make an example out of them, they're, but they're pretty tough. So he gathers together this group of other kings, so they'll kind of join their armies together uh, in this ad hoc alliance. Uh, not sure that he realizes, I think he probably doesn't realize, that Israel is going to make a lightning march and actually join the battle. I think he thinks it's just them against Gibeon. Uh, but anyway, this name is curious. Adonai, we know that name, don't we? Lord. So his name, Adonai, Zedek, this pagan king, Lord of Righteousness. All right, this king of Jerusalem, his name is Lord of Righteousness. Adonai, Zedek, no connection to the Hebrew people, no connection to Yahweh. That's just his name. Um, essentially a poser, right? Uh, pretending to be someone he's not, pretending to be God, essentially, Lord of Righteousness. Um, and he has no clue uh, that the actual Lord is going to be fighting for his enemies here. Now, there are, you know, we could go off on this for a while, but I would just say something. There are a lot of pretenders, there are a lot of posers out there who would claim to be substitute gods for us. We've talked about this before. An idol, a substitute god, is anything that takes your affections away from your Creator. 
is anyone that invites you to trust, to put your trust ultimately in them and, you know, money or, or sex or fame or, or fitness or whatever, anything can be a poser. Well, this one is posing as the Lord of righteousness, right? Um, so these posers are enemies. They always are. Uh, they want to destroy God's work in our lives, uh, and they want, to, uh, they want to tear down those who trust in the true God of the universe. So off they go to attack, to attack Gibeon. Now Joshua gets word of this at his camp over in Gilgal, um, and he is going to honor his alliance with the Gibeonites. Not only, I mean, he goes a step beyond. Not only will we not attack Gibeon, but we're actually going to come to Gibeon's defense. And he marches his army all night long to get there for the battle that's going to start the next day and to arrive in time to clash with these five kings led by Adonai Zedek. Now, here's something we're seeing in the book of Joshua over and over and over when it comes to authentic faith. Authentic faith in God involves trusting in the Lord, and part of that is acting on that trust, right? Is actually making decisions, is actually uh, aligning my behavior up. It's not just up here like, yeah, I trust in the Lord. I mean, like the brother of Jesus, James, wrote in James chapter 2, verse 17. You've heard this in the same way. Uh, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is what? It's dead. It's lifeless. I mean, it's not real faith. It's not, the, it's not the whole story if it doesn't have action with it. So if my faith does not move me, if my faith does not influence my decisions, uh, the directions I take, the way I speak, the way I treat people, the way I use my money, if my faith doesn't influence my actions, uh, I think James would say it's, it's not really faith. It's, it's something dead that looks like faith, but it's not really faith. Now Joshua believes in God, so he starts marching. And he invites his men to follow him. And they head up for this battle. And Joshua is certain that God is going to do something because of those promises that he's received from God. So let's be clear. I don't think, uh, well, no. Joshua doesn't know exactly what's going to happen in this battle. Doesn't know exactly how God is going to show up. Certainly doesn't know at this point that the sun is going to stand still. He just trusts God, right? So when we don't know, when you don't know exactly what's coming um, in faith, we still move forward. We still trust God. Uh, we still lean into the one that we know, God. When we may not know all of the circumstances, we know him. And we know that God is good. We know that God is faithful. And we know that he can give us victory or he can teach us in defeat, right? Um, and we know that we're not going to experience anything in our walk with him if we do not trust him. Okay. And wow, there they are, sprinting up all night march on this fight uh, with five kings and their, their armies. Honestly, through the eyes of faith, I suspect, gee, I really read this and I thought, Joshua sees this as bundling, right? I mean, not like bundling your car and auto, or your auto and your home insurance, but bundling in the sense, hey, 
I'm supposed to conquer all this land, and thank you, God, you've put five of the kings together in the same place at the same time. Very efficient way to knock out five enemies right here. I mean, bundling, right? Um, so there we go. So in the, in, with a sense of calling, with a sense of destiny, the men of Israel follow Joshua on this all-night march toward this battle, and now for the battle, right? Um, right off the bat, everything starts going very, very wrong for the enemies of Israel because they had no idea Israel was actually going to be there that morning. I mean, how did they get here so quickly? So they are surprised, to put it mildly. They are in chaos. They are running every which way, total confusion, caught off guard, and the army of Joshua begins pursuing and begins cutting the enemy soldiers down as they run away in full retreat. And then God intervenes very directly, sending these giant hailstones from the skies in this aerial bombardment of Adonai Zedek and his army as they run. They're, they're just getting pounded by these gigantic hailstones. And, and the text tells us that more of them die by the hailstones than even die by the swords of the Israelite soldiers. So mass, mass casualties inflicted at this point. The only problem is Joshua, the general, perceives that daylight is going to dwindle. Okay? They can pursue. Once it gets dark, the fight is over. Right? We don't have uh, helicopters flying around with, with infrared technology to fight at night. We don't have uh, Joshua SEAL teams wearing night vision goggles. When it's dark, this is the way it happened at that time in history, the battle, everybody stops fighting. And Joshua's like, this isn't good because we're winning, winning, winning. We need more daylight. And so he asks God to do something really impossible. Joshua chapter 10, starting in verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O son, stand still. So this is a prayer. O son, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still. The moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as is written in the book of Jasher. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day, so roughly 24 hours. There has never been a day like it before. Or since, it's a one-off, a day when the Lord listened to a man, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Only explanation for this, right? Um, the sun, it seems to freeze in the sky, allowing Israel plenty of extra time to mop this up to win a complete, a total victory. These these. These peoples are not going to bother them again for a very long time. And so great is the rout that when Israel captures these five kings, they actually don't want to slow down their pursuit of their armies who are still running away. So they just kind of throw these five guys in the back of a little cave and they wall it up with stones. And they're like, we'll get back to these knuckleheads later. We're going to go ahead and pursue their armies before we come back. So, so it's a really interesting, interesting visual scenario there and the, and the battle finally does come to an end 
Joshua and his men come back to that cave where you've got these five kings inside. And we'll just see what happens here in verses 22 to 26. Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the, to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So just try to visualize, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on the necks. Uh, of these guys. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid. He's going to repeat words God has said to him. Now he's going to tell his men. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all of the enemies who we are going to fight. Then Joshua struck and killed the kings and hung them on five trees and they were left hanging on the trees until evening. And I love the way Joshua models some leadership for us here. Um, These soldiers have never experienced anything like this, like putting their foot on the neck of a king, right? Um, He invites them to do that. Why would he invite them to do that? Well, this is a symbol. I mean, obviously, this is a symbol of dominion. Uh, This is saying, look, this is our land, God has given this land to us. No one is going to stand in our way. And it is a way Joshua makes very clear. This is because of the Lord. He makes very clear the credit for this amazing day or more than a day of fighting. All of the credit goes to God. Okay. Now, the victory is from the Lord. Now, they wanted, uh, they, let me say this, they worked Right? I mean, all night march and a lot of fighting, a lot of running, a lot of... They worked very hard uh, in this partnership with the Lord, but really all the credit goes to the Lord. That's the way it works with us, right, as believers. uh, When good things happen, we work, we do our part, um, but the credit goes to God. And Joshua says, this is what the Lord will do to all the enemies we're going to fight. We're going to see some amazing things happen. We're going to partner with God, but... The things that are going to blow us away are going to happen because God is with us, because God is doing things. And this is so important because, I mean, it's just a reminder, right? When we see God answer a prayer, when we see God do something incredible in our lives, we want to be sure to stop and to acknowledge this publicly. And, I mean, it may be with a group of your family or a group of friends. Uh, It may be on Facebook or Twitter or something, but just acknowledge publicly. um, Look at what God did. You know, don't don't keep that to yourself. I mean, otherwise, people might think it was by your ability, might praise you, or they might think, you, wow, you're just really a really lucky person. No, we want to be like Joshua and make sure that God gets the credit. In fact, uh, so, you know, David's going to write about this. He knew something about this. In Psalm 115, verse 1, David says, It does not belong to us, Lord. The glory belongs to you because of your love and loyalty. So, we're making sure that, that God gets the credit. Okay. I don't know about you. I am always fascinated to see how Jesus shows up 
in the Old Testament in some really, where, where is Jesus in this story? In some very unusual stories. This one's an unusual one. To see how the gospel appears in some of these Old Testament stories, unexpected places, and really the whole Bible centers around Jesus, right? The Old Testament's pointing towards him. The New Testament's pointing at him. And I got a little graphic here for you about how this works. Like the Old Testament is all about anticipation. We got prophecies about Jesus starting in, in the book of Genesis, in the first chapters of the Bible. And then you get to the New Testament, and the Gospels are obviously pointing right at Jesus as he's there, as he's speaking, as he's preaching. It's a manifestation. He has come. And in the book of Acts, we've got Peter and Paul and these fellows, they are proclaiming the coming of Jesus, right? They're announcing that. They're preaching the first gospel sermons. The epistles are explaining Jesus. And then, of course, the book of Revelation is giving us a, a picture of the consummation at the end of time of all things under the dominion of Jesus. So, how does this particular story point to the Savior? Well, let's start with that final part of the story. With those five kings who have been killed, humiliated, and now they are hanging on those trees, right? And in ancient Semitic cultures, this was a way to shame an adversary, to shame one of your enemies. Uh, for your body, for your cadaver to be hung on a tree was synonymous with being cursed. Okay? being cursed. Um, the New Testament talks about this. The Old Testament talks about this. It was a curse. In the Gospels, right, our King, Jesus, the true Adonai Zedek, the true Lord of righteousness, who really deserves the throne in Jerusalem, right? In the Gospels, he hangs on a tree. He suffers rejection, betrayal, shame. That's the story of the cross. And when we remember this, when we remember how the Son of Glory willingly suffered this rejection and shame, willingly took the curse on himself for our sin when he carries that in himself to this lonely tree just outside of Jerusalem, it fills us with hope. It fills us with strength because he did that for us. He chose that. Our Lord, the Lord of righteousness, took our place on that tree. He did what we could never accomplish on our own. And so the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 talks about it like this, verses 2 to 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the tree, endured the cross. Scorning its shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What a Savior we worship. There's never been anyone like this Lord of righteousness, Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and we'll sing in just a moment. Father God, we praise you for Jesus. We're so thankful for this good news, for this story that we are a part of. And Father, I pray tonight for myself. And I pray for each person here, for this congregation, that you will grow our faith, that we will believe in you more than ever, that we will trust you to do impossible things in our lives, in our church, in our city, that we will have eyes that are open to see your work and mouths that open to praise and acknowledge the work that we see you do. The credit, the glory, it's all yours. And we thank you once again, Jesus, for taking our place on that cross, for wearing the curse that we deserved, for wearing that for us and saving us by your grace. It's in your name that we pray, King Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.